going to read a couple of Bible readings. Don't be frightened when I say a couple of. They're very short. The first one is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors many times and in many ways through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son. He is the one through whom God created the universe, the one whom God had chosen to possess all things at the end. And he reflects the brightness of God's glory and is the exact likeness of God's own being, sustaining the universe with his powerful word. And after achieving forgiveness for human sins, he sat down in heaven at the right-hand side of God, the supreme power. And then we're in John 17. And again, it's just 1 to 5. And after Jesus finished saying this, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Give glory to your Son so that the Son may give glory to you. For you gave him authority over all humanity, so that, the might give, so that he might give eternal life to all those you gave him. And eternal life means knowing you, the only true God, and knowing Jesus Christ, whom you sent. I have shown your glory on earth. I have finished the work you gave me to do. Father, give me glory in your presence now. The same glory I had with you before the world was made. I think I may have used this starting illustration before, but never mind, I'm going to use it again. And it's a story about a young girl in a Sunday school class who proudly presented her drawing to her Sunday school teacher. That's lovely, Emma. What is it? asked her Sunday school teacher. It's a picture of God, the girl exclaimed emphatically. But no one has ever seen God, explained her teacher. But not to be put off, the little girl replied, well, you have now. <laughs> um, fundamentally, you and I have to face the fact that our faith in God is a faith in an invisible God, a God who we are unable to see, 
And indeed, there are many out there today who would be only too eager to point this out to us. And we live in a world where people say, perhaps cynically, I'll see it when I believe it. Sorry, I'll I'll believe it when I see it. Um, And of course, the phrase, seeing is believing, is is common amongst our culture. Um, And yet, for the Christian, it's the very opposite. Believing is not seeing. And, uh, you know, it's not a new problem because Jesus himself, when he was speaking to Thomas after the resurrection, uh, Thomas, who refused to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead unless he had physical uh, and visible truth, uh, Jesus spoke these words. He said to Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed And he goes on to say, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And do you know, you and I stand blessed since we have not seen, but nevertheless we believe. But God has not in any way been unfair to us because he has deliberately chosen to reveal himself to us And he's done that in all sorts of ways, but perhaps two particular ways which I want to focus on this morning. And first of all, you and I have the most amazing, the most comprehensive visual aid that reveals to us the glory, the majesty, and the sovereignty of our Father God. Simply look around when you're out on a stroll And what do you see? Look upwards on a clear night, one of those crisp, frosty nights, and what do you see? Look through a magnifying glass at a tiny insect, and what do you see? The creation is a most powerful asset and a wonderful visual aid that God has generously and lovingly provided for us, simply that we may, through the creation, grasp something of the glorious nature of our God, who is indeed the creator of the universe. Now, indeed, everyone may enjoy and explore the wonders of the created universe, and we may be drawn to the glory of its creator. But you know... For those who don't see the connection, the Bible says there's no excuse. And Paul makes this quite plain when he writes to the Romans. In fact, he says it in quite fierce words, really. He says, um, he says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So men are without excuse. Quite a harsh set of words from Paul. And yet... God's creation is there that we might understand his glory. The wonderful universe is simply that. It's a testimony to God's glory. 
And it gives me an amazing joy to look up at the universe and to think of its utter vastness, a vastness far greater than we can ever explore in our lifetimes because of the size of it. And God's put that there simply to tell me that he's glorious and, uh, and the rest of you too. It's wonderful. God's glory is clear for everyone and God's eternal power and divine nature has been seen being understood from what has been made. And of course the tragedy is that many will deny this connection between the wonderful created universe that we see and experience and the glory of the one who has created it. And yet you and I have this immense privilege of knowing the creator as our heavenly father. So I want us to think about why it is so important that we know God's glory. And perhaps some of you are saying, well, why the glory? Should we not focus in on God's love, God's mercy or God's grace? And I would argue that fundamental to everything we know about God is his glory. It is that he is glorious and therefore from that glory his love flows, his mercy flows and his grace flows. These things would not be possible if God was not glorious. God has the ability to love you and me fundamentally because he is glorious. So what is God's glory? Well, we, we, we tried to have an illustration with our towers this morning and we, I failed miserably because it was a clock tower apparently, but, you know, we tried. Um, but glory is the most fundamental attribute of, that God has. It's his very signature. Indeed, it's the very essence of the Godhead, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, we think of them in their glory. We sing about their glory. We've sung about their glory this morning. God is infinite. He is complete. And in that sense, we cannot add to God's glory. But neither will God give up his glory. And he expresses this particularly when he is addressing the stubbornness of Israel in the prophet, through the prophet Isaiah. He said this, for my own sake, for my own sake, I do this. He's merciful to his people. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. God is rather jealous about his glory, um, jealous in the righteous sense here. And yet, God is glorified by his creation. It ascribes glory to him. And he's also glorified by his people. And that means you and me. Now, we cannot enhance God's glory because it's already utterly complete and infinite. And God's glory stands forever. It, ha- it is in no way deficient. And yet, Scripture tells us that God delights when his people glorify his name. 1 Chronicles, we read, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. This is what God's people have been doing throughout history. And when you and I lift up the name of our Father God in the world in which we live, 
when we magnify him in the eyes of others, when we bear witness to his glorious nature, then in that sense, we glorify him. And Peter uh, says this in his letters. He says, if anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and power forever and ever. And Paul explains to us that as his people, everything we do should be to God's glory. Indeed, he says, so whether you eat or drink, the very mundane things of life, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This is part and parcel of what it means to be one of God's people. So why should we glorify God? Well, fundamentally, the answer is simple. God has given us the very life that we enjoy. And uh, the psalmist says this. He says, know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And uh, Peter says this. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him. In other words, we may glorify him. And we are reminded that we've been called out of darkness into his wonderful created light. And the only reasonable response is the response that we so often read of the psalmists. And I've picked just one of those uh, verses here. Where the psalmist says, I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. Now, we've explored God's glory. We've thought about it in creation. And we've asked what it is and why we should be concerned about it. And in a sense, we could just stop there. Because we know what we need to know. But if we were to do that, we would be missing the greatest element of God's revelation of his glory to us. And this is where we need to refer to the two readings we looked at um, and and, uh, that were read for us this morning. So first of all, let's think of those opening verses from Hebrews. And we're reminded that in the past, God spoke to us through our forefathers, through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Notice there the connection with the creation through whom he made the universe. It was a joint activity between the Father and Son, the creation which testifies to God's glory. But it's here that we discover the pinnacle, the very climax of God's revelation of himself to us through Jesus Christ. Yes, the revelation of God's glory through creation is wonderful and immense and awesome, to use a modern word. But God's revelation of himself through Jesus Christ is the climax. It's the greatest revelation that we have of God's glory. And the writer to the Hebrews is saying that in Old Testament times, God spoke through the words of the prophets. God used those words that he revealed to the prophets as means of making his word known to his people. But in contrast, we are 
have this striking statement that in these last days, these are the days we live in, we live in the last days, God has spoken to us through his Son. The appearance of Jesus Christ into human history some 2,000 years ago was the completion of God's revelation to his people, which includes you and me. And it's not God changing his revelation, but rather bringing it to completion and giving us detail that God's people of Old Testament times never had. Now, to try and illustrate that with a very poor uh, illustration, I suppose, um, I don't know about you, but sometimes if you, if, you, if you think, well, I might like to go out to eat later in the week, maybe on Saturday night, and uh, there's a new restaurant in town, you go and you, you look at the menu. And the menu gives you some idea of the quality of the food and perhaps the experience that you're going to have. But it's only when you go in and actually order and taste the food that you truly appreciate its richness and its quality. Now, if you can understand that rather crude illustration and map it onto what we're seeing here in Hebrews, the writings of the prophets pointed to Jesus Christ. They were the menu to Jesus Christ, the coming saviour. And it gave that anticipation amongst God's people. But it is Jesus Christ himself and our experience of him as our saviour, which is the actual taste and see. It's the fullness of the revelation to us. And in Jesus Christ alone can we experience the full richness and delight of our glorious Father God in heaven. And the Hebrew writer goes on to express the excellence and the credentials of Jesus Christ by writing that God appointed Jesus Christ as heir of all things and the one through whom he made the universe, this great visual aid that we have, this wonderful statement of God's glory in terms of the things that you and I can actually appreciate and see and understand. And we're told that the universe was created through Jesus Christ But Jesus is the climax of God's revelation of his glory. And we notice too that Christ is the heir of all things, including the entirety of the universe and its people throughout history. But there is a wonderful statement in verse 3, and this is the climax, I think, for me. It says, The sun is the radiance of God's glory the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus, the Son of God, is the radiance of God's glory, not merely a reflection, but the very radiance of God's glory. When we see Jesus Christ, we understand God's glory because God's glory radiates out through the sun. And wasn't it Jesus himself who said, I am the light of the world in John's gospel? And in being the light of the world, it is Jesus Christ who radiates the light of God's glory, his perfection and his majesty. The radiance of Jesus is derived from the Father, even though he himself is the light. And it's the sun who causes the radiance of the Father to be shone forth into the world in which we live. 
And remember too those words from the beginning of John's Gospel where he said that the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. But to go back to Hebrews, we're told that Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. Jesus Christ is the perfect representation of God. God himself is stamped upon the Son. And in fact, the words, the Greek behind this, where we translate the word, the the phrase exact representation, is exactly the same word that would describe the relationship between the head on a coin and the monarchy that it represents. The exact representation is like the perfect picture on a coin that bears the image of the ruler of the nation. Remember when Jesus uh, was discussing with the disciples and he was talking to Philip and uh, again there was confusion amongst the disciples and Jesus said I am the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the father except through me very familiar words to you and me and uh, he said if you really knew me you would know my father as well from now on you do know him and you have seen him and Philip is confused and he says Jesus sorry Lord show us the father and that will be enough for us and Jesus answered this don't you know me Philip even after such a long time Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And that is that exact representation. It is that radiance of God's glory. We have the great privilege of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and therefore we know our Father in heaven. And that is the link. That is the link between God's glory and our knowledge of God's glory. It is all through the Son. And let's go on to the other few verses that we read from John's gospel and I think this particular few verses represent the most intimate moment in the whole of scripture because here we see recorded for us Jesus speaking one-to-one with his father in heaven he's there in prayer father the time has come glorify your son so that your son may glorify you and this wonderful record of Jesus in prayerful dialogue with God his father is amazing that we have it recorded for us and it links all the promises of the bible to the throne of God and here we know that everything we know about God is certain and here we learn that the focus and purpose of our lives is to glorify God. Indeed, the mission of Jesus Christ and his followers, which includes you and me, is to glorify our Father in heaven. That's it. Ask about the meaning of life. The meaning of life is to glorify God. Simple as that or as complicated as that. And Jesus, the great giver of eternal life, that is the outworking of the glory of which he speaks here. And uh, Jesus says, for you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. The authority of Jesus Christ is God-given. It's an authority over the whole human race. It's an authority given for the express purpose of salvation. 
and the conferring of eternal life. And yet, you've probably read this as I've read this passage so many times, but it struck me that verse 3 in particular gives us a definition of eternal life which is rather marvellous. Now this is eternal life that they may know you, and Jesus is talking about they, he's talking about you and me, he's talking about those who believe in him, those who have been saved by him, that's what they means here. Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And that's a wonderful definition of eternal life. Eternal life is simply to know the only true God and to know Jesus Christ whom he sent. And we're told that the only way to know God is through the revelation he has made, and that is simply that God has revealed himself through his son Jesus Christ, who we were told by the Hebrew writer is the exact representation of God's being. And Jesus anticipates the completion of his mission on earth. It's rather a strange prayer in that sense because it's almost as if he's already been to the cross and completed it. But Jesus knew that his mission couldn't fail. And he sees the climax of the cross, the bringing about of salvation as the pinnacle of what he has achieved to God's glorify, glory, to God's glory. And uh, it is in this that God is glorified. It's all brought together. All those loose ends are tied up. And Jesus looks forward then to being restored to the fullness of his glory that he had even before the universe was created. And we think of God's death through his son on the cross, which brings about our salvation. We think of the resurrection. We think of the ascension. And now we think of Jesus who is ascended and glorified and sits at the right hand of his Father in heaven, having had his glory restored to him. Now at this point we need to take a little pause for breath because we've thought of some very profound things this morning, uh, some very amazing and wonderful statements in those few verses that we have read. And we need to ask ourselves, how are we going to respond to this? What, what, is, what can we, we do? Uh, we've, seen all, we've been awestruck, perhaps, by what we've read. So what is our response? And um, I go to the Puritan Thomas, Thomas Watson. I, I like reading the translations from Thomas Watson. He's, he's a very down-to-earth person when you, if you read his readings. And uh, he asks questions and then gives the answers. And one of the questions he asks, which is probably in slightly old-fashioned language, but he says, what is the chief purpose of man? In other words, what's the meaning of life? What, what, what is the, what, what's it all about? And then he answers his question and says, the chief purpose of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And I think that's wonderful. Our chief aim the agenda for you and me as God's people is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And I think as we think of God's glory, we mustn't forget that we can enjoy God's glory. And it's something we start to enjoy on this earth, but how much more will we enjoy it in heaven? 
And you might say, well, how can we glorify God? What can we do? Well, we need to appreciate God. We need to adore him. We need to worship him. We need to have that loving relationship with him. We need to delight in our Father in heaven. And we need to be astonished by his glory. So don't ever walk down the street and not give a thought for God's glory that we see in creation. And when you're thinking about your salvation, when you're in your time of prayer, when you're reading the scriptures, or even just thinking maybe of a few verses of a psalm, remember God's glory and adore God for it. Remember, Paul said, and we read this verse earlier on, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So in our everyday activities, however mundane they might be, we are to do everything for God's glory. And maybe it would be quite an interesting thing just to think of the very mundane things we do and say, well, yeah, we can glorify God even in those. Do everything for the glory of God. You see, what you and I do with our lives really matters. It really matters to God. So don't waste time in your life. And I know as you get older, you begin to think how perhaps you've wasted time in the past. Do everything to the glory of God. Let's use our lives, even the mundane things of life, to give God the glory. So we need to deepen our relationship with God so that we can know him better and we can give him all the more the glory We can read the Bible to know God better. We can share in fellowship to share our personal experiences of God with each other, to give each other an uplift. We can collectively give glory to God that way. And next time you pray to your Father in heaven, the one who made you, the one who has saved you through Jesus Christ, and the one who loves you with an everlasting love, do remember his glory. And remember this, that you and I are loved today by our Heavenly Father just as much as he will love you when we are in heaven. And finally, we are to share God's um, glory with others. We should speak of God's glory. We should make God's glory known to our children, to our families, to our friends, to our neighbors, to the people we work with. That wonderful glory which is revealed through Jesus Christ. Whenever we speak of Jesus Christ to others, whenever we speak of God's glory, then we bring glory to our Father in heaven. But there's one final thing I want to share with you, and this is something I've often thought about over the years. And first of all, Paul is speaking to Timothy at the end of his ministry. Paul is quite an old man now, and uh, he speaks about a crown And, um, sorry, here we are. Um, And Paul says this to Timothy, he says, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. Um, This is associated with finishing the race, the race that the Lord has set before us. Um, The crown of righteousness. And it's stored up for Paul But he goes on to say, uh, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, but also 
to all who have longed for his appearing. And I'm sure that you and I long for the appearing of the Lord. We are his people. We've been saved by him. We long for his appearing. And that means in store for you and me is a crown. A crown of righteousness. And, okay, you've got your crown. And we then move on to a wonderful picture where we just open the curtains ever so slightly and we have a little glimpse into what heaven is like. It's very difficult to do this. To understand about heaven is very, very difficult. The Bible doesn't really tell us very much about it, but there is a place where there's a little chink of light in the curtain. And I'm reminded of a very well-known verse that we often sing but perhaps don't relate to this idea of the crown, and that is... um, It's the one that goes, change from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love and praise. Um, We all know that verse from um, Love Divine. But here is the verse from Revelation. Um, It's on two slides to make it easier to read. And uh, here we've got this this picture, this vision of heaven, uh, of the throne of God. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. One day, you and I will be before the throne of glory. We will see God face to face, and we will cast our crowns before him, lost in wonder, love, and praise. And we will say together with the rest of the heavenly host to our heavenly Father, we will say to him, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. That is our destiny. So let's get used to God's glory today and let us celebrate it, let us enjoy it, let us give God the glory in all things that we do and let's share it with the world outside. Amen.